Hi, everyone. It's Mike again. And Steven. And this is Re-Oscar, where we pick a year from Hollywood's biggest night. We look at what they got right, where they went wrong, and share some useless thoughts and uh, information along the way. Thanks, everyone, for being here. We're going to cover the 1995 Oscars, which is movies that came out in 1994. So as we were looking at this, I realized that I did not know that I would ever do a podcast about Oscars, but I'm very sure that the seed of doing something about the Oscars and where they go wrong was planted at the 1995 Oscars when I watched it, because <laughs> I've always had strong thoughts about this Oscars and I did in the year that I saw it. So it's nice that I've come full circle and here I am to talk about this because I've been thinking about it for a really long time. It's a year that had a lot going on. I, I, very much uh, kind of, in my opinion, a shifting of the tide between old and new. Like I, A lot like last year's Oscars with everything everywhere all at once beating out Spielberg and the Fablemans. This year, even though kind of the, the young guns didn't win, but you have Pulp Fiction, which to me sets the tone for everything after it in the 90s, basically, from 94 forward. And that's a huge moment. I, I mean, you see that off, like you saw that with New Hollywood in the 70s. I think you see it here and you saw it this year. So I guess it's kind of a cycle, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge year. So uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. The other thing I was taking as I was looking at it is that there's a lot of, a lot of diversity in a way about the movies that were made, uh, which I think you see less and less of as the years have gone on uh, and even more so now, especially with Hollywood movies and things, but uh, just a lot of different types of movies. I mean, there's a lot of really, really dumb comedies. Like you got your Dumb and Dumbers and your Naked Gun 33 and a third, but you have two really wonderful African-American coming of age stories. You have the Inkwell and you got Crooklyn, which are two really nice movies. Uh, mm -hmm. Enjoyable, I always like them. So you've kind of got that. And then you've got, you know, a lot of some independent, the independent stuff starts bubbling up more. So you're seeing a lot of those. and some strong Hollywood stuff. So I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff that came out that year. Yeah. Uh, to speak to the, the independent stuff. Um, it, it's a huge year for that. You have Danny Boyle's first film. Mm -hmm. um, you have Tarantino kind of really reaching that early pinnacle after a couple of years of writing and, and, uh, and of course, Reservoir Dogs, but you have Kate Winslet's first film with heavenly creatures and reality bites clerks, uh, Kevin Smith's first film. So yeah, it's a huge year for that. And I guess maybe that's the foundation laid by Sex, Lies, and Videotape in, eight, I guess, 89. But uh, it's kind of coming to fruition, that that early 90s independent scene. And, and really, what I think this year will do is open the door even further, because in 98, you have Matt Damon and Ben Affleck winning an Oscar for writing Goodwill Hunting. You have Paul Thomas Anderson being nominated for Boogie Nights. Uh, I, I think this this is just a, a real tipping point for independence. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a great year. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. There's some fun stuff in here. I mean, this was a big movie year for both of us. But I remember, uh, I mean, The Crow came out that year. Yeah which I was kind of obsessed with, I'm not going to lie, uh, for lots of reasons. I mean, I know it's an imperfect movie and that it, they never really got to complete the movie they were trying to make, unfortunately, because Brendan Lee died during filming. But uh, 
the the look of that movie and just the general feel of it, I, I was just in love with that with that movie, uh, the way that it was filmed and the way that it looked. And I thought Brandon Lee was totally magnetic in that movie. Um, I love that there's just a random Meryl Streep action movie, The River Wild, which I always really liked. <laughs> and uh, Kevin Bacon, yeah, plays plays the, the the villain in that, which is pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, so that that that's a good one as well. Uh, but you years removed now as I'm looking at it, I realize it's a lot of good movies by some future problematic people, which is also a strange thing to grapple with because Kevin Spacey was in two of my favorite movies of that year. Uh, Swimming with Sharks, I've always mm-hmm. loved. It's a great independent movie. Yeah. And he was also in The Ref, which I don't think many people really like. I almost saved this from my guilty pleasures, but I don't think it's guilty. I, I just think it's a fun movie. It actually is on my holiday movie list. Yeah. I watch it with my family, of course, not with my kids, but I watch it by myself almost every year. It's just uh, Dennis Leary at his most Dennis Leary in a movie. And Kevin Spacey, who didn't know at the time, is really great in it. Uh, directed by Ted Demi, just kind of a, a fun uh, fun comedy movie, which which I've always enjoyed. So was, uh, was yeah. that Dennis Leary's first role? I don't remember. I don't think it was his first movie. Definitely, I, I think it was his first starring role, though. If I'm not okay. mistaken. Uh, I mean, Christine Baranski is in it, who I didn't know at the time, but now it's kind of fun. Judy Davis, like, just it's a it's a it's an enjoyable movie. I've always liked it. But um, the paper as well, which is one of those movies that I feel like was an Oscar bait kind of movie that never really got there for whatever the reasons are. But I'm a big fan of the paper. I. I he liked it. I think that Michael Keaton was overlooked in the movie. And I think it was really enjoyable. It was Ron Howard just continuing to churn out. It was the the period to me of still peak Ron Howard, where he's still just putting out good Ron Howard movies. Everything he kind of puts out was enjoyable. So that's another one. This is what I love about this podcast is, is I'm going down this independent rabbit hole and you're looking at these Ron Howard films. And I think that the two of us together kind of cover everything, which is really great. Yeah, that's what um, I'm here for. I've never, I, I've told you this and, and I will admit it, I'm too old to pretend that I'm not a, a basic, I get kind of basics when it comes to movies. I'll, I'll ride that popular wave. I, I, I always like the big movies that come out for better or worse. But um, but here's one for you, which I wasn't saying for guilty pleasure either because this is one of my favorite movies and I always try to recommend it to people. Uh, which I don't think many people have actually seen. It's a movie called Fresh, which Samuel Jackson has a, a small part in it, but it has always been one of my favorite movies. And I recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it or hasn't heard of it. But um, Giancarlo Esposito is actually in it. He plays a good part in that. Uh, mm-hmm. A really young Sean Nelson who goes on to be in a, in a bunch of things. But it's, it's it's got a little bit of a searching searching for Bobby Fischer in it. If searching mm-hmm. Bobby Fisher also involves drug dealing, but it's it's uh, just a really well laid out movie, and it, it, and it uh, plays out really well. Where he essentially uses the ideas of playing chess to pit drug gangs against each other, try to figure out a way out of this life that he's kind of stuck in. It's about a young kid who's a drug runner. But um, another one of those independent movies in Miramax did it that just kind of ends up, you know, on the surface. I don't think many people saw that it wasn't too big, and the director ends up directing Remember the Titans a little bit down the road, which ends up being a big movie for him. But uh, let's go back to Fresh. And I would say to anyone who hasn't seen it, I recommend it. It was a really good movie of 94. There were so many 
independent films starting to be made at this point uh, through Miramax and and I think Fox Searchlight and Warner Independent even at that time. And, uh, you know, they kind of went under the radar a little bit. And that was definitely one of them. Another one that I that maybe isn't completely an independent film, but uh, that I really love and that I think is important from this year is Leon the Professional, which launched Natalie Portman, of course, uh, and Jean Renault, I guess, to a degree for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and continued Gary Oldman's uh, run of crazy people characters <laughs> from from True Romance the year before. Uh, but I think that's kind of gotten more uh, acclaim over the years as more people found it. But I don't recall back then it really being something that was on a lot of people's radars and uh, that just kind of happened during that year. But and and subsequent years in the 90s. But to me, that was a that was just a really good film. I mean, you have a little kid in it who's like crushing it. And uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of one of the ones that I thought was was pretty amazing, too. Yeah, good child performances between Sean Nelson and Fresh uh, and Natalie Portman and Professional. But continuing my, my thoughts on problematic people in good movies, I'll just say it. I love Maverick. <laughs> it's it's like a movie I've watched many many times. I think it's really funny. I, I think that out of the two movies that Jodie Foster made in 1994, I'll take Maverick a hundred times out of a hundred over Nell. <laughs> I'm be completely clear about that because this is one of the few movies where I feel like she really seems to be enjoying herself as well. You mm-hmm. really get to see her play just kind of comedy and be frivolous in a movie, and it's really fun. And I mean, you know, her and Mel Gibson. I mean, they're still friends. They've been friends for a long time. You can just see they enjoy being in the movie together. Yeah. Uh, I know it's hard to discuss Mel Gibson, but look, at one point, Mel Gibson was a huge movie star and was incredibly charismatic. Right. And Maverick just kind of plays on those things. He's he's really fun in the movie. There's a Danny Glover cameo because it's directed by Richard Donner. So you got some lethal weapon reunion thing going on. <laughs> it's about, it, you know, it's about poker tournament on a boat. And I always like gambling movies. It's 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 uh it's way up there. Like I I've watched that movie. I may have watched that movie more than any other movie on these on these lists. Really? It's it was on cable a lot at one point. I just remember kind of watching it because it was there. So maybe my watching it too much makes it a guilty pleasure, but I still don't think it's a guilty pleasure because it was a it was a high profile movie that was pretty popular at the time. But definitely one that's just kind of been completely forgotten in in time. But yeah, I, I guess if we're thinking about things we watch the most, for me it would probably be uh, Reality Bites, <laughs> which I absolutely loved. I, I was, I think, uh, I was right at an age where I wanted to be Troy Dyer because he was just the coolest guy. He didn't try too hard, <laughs> and uh, Ethan Hawke really sold it really well and and uh of course that's that's not a, a role model to model yourself after but uh this I've, makes me really happy i feel like i'm finally getting a true window into you because you know i see you as this highbrow film guy the reality bites i appreciate it i'm, I'm happy to hear it yeah no ambition just spouting off yeah, um that may come a little too close close to the bone for me maybe. yeah i think a lot of us at this age are uh especially being influenced by these films. I mean, really, you know, if you look at the 90s and and even going back with Slacker, which I think was in 1990, that was kind of the start of uh, this generation of of 
well, slacking. And yeah, uh, well, this is, you know, Hollywood's answer to slacker. They realized that this was becoming a thing. And so this was Hollywood's version of wanting to make a Gen X movie, which yeah. you can take for that what you will. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a side track here. I'm gonna jump off track just because I can't help myself. But just to say, in terms of '94, the music of '94, the albums that came out in '94. I'm really talk about things that are, were big in culture at the time. But I mean, some really huge seminal records came out in '94. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Super Unknown by Soundgarden, which is definitely their best record, came out in '94. A Park mm-hmm. Life by Blur, definitely maybe by Oasis, that was their first album. Right. I mean, Britpop in, in its ascendancy right there, like two of probably the most popular Britpop albums that came out. Uh, Illmatic by Nas and Ready to Die by Notorious B.I.G. also came out that year. Just, I mean, those two records make almost everyone's top 10 hip-hop albums of all time. Both of those came out in 94, along with Ill Communication by the Beastie Boys, which is my favorite Beastie Boys album. But, well, I think that it's that kind of goes hand in hand with the film industry and, and just like young independent artists coming up with something new. I mean, I, I don't know. There was something in the air in the, in the mid nineties. And I'm, I'm really glad that that was the time for me that I uh, was at a point where I was super impressionable because there was just a lot of art and I was seeking it out and it, and it resonated and, and, uh, yeah, what a what a good time, and and I think that's reflected in the Oscars. Yeah, I agree. But as usual with the Oscars, it kind of reflects that they're kind of there, but they never quite get there. Uh, they're always a little bit behind the curve. Yeah, uh, that's as good a segue as I can possibly imagine. So uh, may- maybe we can segue right into the categories if, if you. Yeah, let's get into it. And and before we do though, I want to say that uh, this this is the Oscars with the famous Uma Oprah moment that David Letterman uh, created for us. And uh, I watched a bit of the ceremony and he was really as uncomfortable as you could be up there, (laughs) which most of these hosts are, I think. But as I did a little research, this was kind of a point where Letterman was sort of taking over the ratings from Leno at this point. And that all stopped after the Oscars. It kind of did him in. So (laughs) it's a... I think Letterman is very representative of of the independent spirit of 1994, and he is uh, kind of the guy who's on the outside looking in and and uh, can possibly hang with the big boys, but maybe uh, thumbing his nose at them while he does it. So exactly, it, which is why perfect. it's one of my favorite Oscars as well. I kind of love Letterman at that Oscars. I just liked it. He was uncomfortable. He made everybody else uncomfortable. And it was just kind of weird. I like that he had stupid pet tricks and he gets like Tom Hanks involved. Like all of these things are just great, never to be repeated. So uh, I, I love it. I, I'm really glad that it happened. All right, let's let's jump into it. Um, we'll start with Best Supporting Actress, which went to Diane Weist for Bullets Over Broadway. Uh, the other nominees were Rosemary Harris for Tom and Viv, Helen Mirren for The Madness of King George, Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, and Jennifer Tilly in Bullets Over Broadway. Um, who did you who did you think deserved this? So I, I think this was probably the easiest category uh, for me anyway. I mean, I liked Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, of course. She didn't have a ton of screen time. Uh, Jennifer Tilly was, was actually really good in Bullets Over Broadway, which is a movie I find that I like a lot more than I even expected to. Uh, I agree. It, I went back and watched it 
And well, I found Jennifer Tilly to be her usual sort of irritating self, but good for the role. And I I watched it because of Jazz Palminteri's role. And uh, I found myself really getting into it and really enjoying it. And I, I thought he did a great job, which was surprising. And so, yeah, I'm with you. It was surprisingly yeah, it good. It was a fun movie. But but again, I mean, we talk about supporting actors and what they're what makes the performance stand out. And Diane Weiss, like every time she's on screen, like she just kind of owns that movie. Yeah. Uh, and and kind of playing against type a little bit as well. We're not not as you usually expect to see her in a movie. She's usually a little bit quirky, but a little bit subdued. And in this one, she just goes kind of full bombast. And, and uh, she's really wonderful. I really enjoyed her in this movie. So I have no issues with this one at all. I'm in agreement. I, I think that she uh, did a great job. and and. Like you said, the, what the role is uh, of a supporting actress, she she filled it well. Um, definitely took over the screen when she was on it. Uh, not a ton of screen time, I guess, but she made the most of it when she had it. And I think Uma Thurman did too, but I just don't think there's enough in that role to give it to her. I mean, we will say if there was a special Oscar category for best reaction shot to getting an adrenaline shot after a drug overdose, she wins hands down. That's just great. All the credit to her for that one. But yeah, overall, because uh, that's the thing about the part of Diane Weiss played where she wasn't in it a ton, yet when you think of the movie, you think of her. So I think that kind of says it all. Yeah, and, and I think this is another instance where uh, if you go forward like to 2023 and you think about the cultural relevance of Mia Wallace, Uma Thurman's role in Pulp Fiction, it was huge. I mean, it, it remains to be something that's kind of stood the test of time. But at the time, even though I'm sure she was recognized and as already kind of a cultural thing, I think that her personality with uh, Tarantino's words just uh, made her great in it. But uh, in that, yeah, in that moment, I think uh, I think Diane Weiss takes it. All right, let's move on to Best Actress. Jessica Lange won for Blue Sky. And the other nominees are Jodie Foster for Nell, Miranda Richardson for Tom and Viv, Winona Ryder in Little Women, and Susan Sarandon in The Client. Um, I have to say, <laughs> I I don't know who I'm going to pick for this. You can talk I, about it. That's what we're here for. Yeah, you know, I, for me, it, it kind of comes down between Susan Sarandon for The Client and Jessica Lange for Blue Sky. And that pains me to say because I didn't love that movie and I thought it was uh, pretty ill-conceived and not written very well. And she was almost a cliche, at least at the beginning, but I think doing what she did with what she was given, uh, she had a, a pretty good performance. But uh, I think in in looking at it now and, and almost flipping a coin in my mind, I'm going to go with Susan Sarandon for the client. That's that's my pick. She did a great job. Uh, kind of a boys club in that movie and, and she held her own and and uh, yeah, that, that's where I'm going to go. What about you? I have a lot of thoughts about this category just because i don't really like it at all yeah. uh, i think it, it's interesting because you go back and, and see winona rider and realize remember when winona rider was huge <laughs> like i mean she was really blowing up and then of course kind of derailed her career a little bit but um but Two she was perfectly here. fine little women i think the problem going back and watching it now is that you compare it to the version that greta gerwig just made yeah which is a, a superior movie i think in every way Mm -hmm. um, but Winona Ryder's fine. I mean, she's fine in it. Nothing spectacular. I already mentioned Nell being my least favorite Jodie Foster performance of the year. I mean, my problem with 
Jodie Foster and Nell and Nell in general is I'm just not a fan of watching actor exercises. I just feel like <laughs> Nell was Jodie Foster having already won Oscars, just kind of looking for a new challenge. And this is what she wanted to do. More power yeah. to her. I mean, it's great that she challenges herself, but I didn't need to watch it. As far as a movie going experience goes, it just wasn't enjoyable to sit through, but I'm sure she worked really hard and I have all the respect for her, but I didn't need to watch her trying to push herself acting wise. Um, Jessica Lang, yeah, I just felt like it was a cartoon in, in a way. It was yeah. just too much for me. It was, it was a lot. Uh, it, it's interesting because I think that Jessica Lang, in some ways, was in a different movie than everybody else in Blue Sky. Absolutely. And with the client, I think that Susan Sarandon was in a different movie than everybody else, which is probably why she might deserve to win. So the client was the second John Grisham adaptation that Joel Schumacher had directed because he directed *The Time to Kill*, and mm -hmm. he directed and it, it hit me as I was watching *The Client* that I realized that you cannot give Joel Schumacher two movies in the same genre because the second one will always be way too much. Mm. So I thought *Time to Kill* was really good. I really enjoyed it. This one, it just felt like a little too cartoony for me. It just felt felt like the the uh, acting coach must have been like Foghorn Leghorn or something. Like everyone's just <laughs> incredibly Southern. It's a lot. All the performances feel over the top. On a, a quick side note, uh, Mary Louise Parker is in this. Oh boy. And, she... Uh, so she was also in Longtime Companion, which we discussed in mm. the previous podcast. And I just remember watching Longtime Companion and thinking, that accent doesn't feel real at all. Like that just feels like a fake Southern accent to me. And then she's in this one and also doing a Southern accent, which feels a bit much. So I was curious about her Southern accents, but I looked it up and realized that she was born in South Carolina. So maybe hmm. I'm wrong. Maybe maybe her <laughs> accents are completely right. And maybe that's her real accent. I have no idea. So maybe I'm the crazy person. They always felt a bit much to me. Back to my long meandering point. But before you, before you do that, let me just say that we, we talked about two great performances from children in 1994 and this is an example of a very bad performance by a child with brad renfro just chewing scenery left and right as the little boy in this film holy moly yeah that's what i mean the whole thing feels like anthony lapalia does like i mean it is just the most thankless role i've ever seen it feels that. like an 80s film yeah it's just a lot but my side point being of course Joel Schumacher also directed Batman Forever, which whatever you think of Batman Forever. And then you give him a second bite of the apple and he makes Batman and Robin, which is completely unwatchable, which just proves the point that you can't let Joel Schumacher make two movies in the same genre or the, the same world because the second one will just be ridiculous and he pushes it way too far. So that's my feeling about the client in general. Yeah. So yeah, the fact that Susan Sarandon kind of holds her own in what's borderline a cartoon, I think is a better performance than Jessica Lange. So if we were picking between these people, I probably would give it to Susan Sarandon as well over Jessica Lange. I just don't love rewarding the hamminess that, that was going on. Uh, we know Jessica Lange would do better, we've seen it. But even in terms of, the, of the, the nominees, okay, many people won't agree with me on this, but I watched True Lies as well, which wasn't really nominated for anything, but also came out in 94. It's not a very good movie either. It's just a lot. It's James Cameron at like peak James Cameron. Yeah. Uh, pre pretty crazy movie. So is Jamie Lee Curtis any more or less over the top than Jessica Lange in Blue Sky? I think Jamie Lee Curtis actually is really good in that movie. 
in, in terms of how ridiculous it is. So uh, if we're going to reward kind of over-the-top performances, why is she not nominated? I, I personally think Robin Wright could have been nominated for Forrest Gump, where she wasn't recognized, where again, she's kind of the moral center of the movie. I mean, not the moral center. She has no morals. That's kind of the point. She's the lack of moral center of the movie. But she's kind of the pivotal person that gives you the outside version of the world that's going on. And I think it's a bit of a thankless role. It's one of those roles where she's there to kind of serve the, the plot point of working against Forrest. And of course, ends up you know, dying in the end for her trouble. Kind of a thankless role, but I think she does a lot with it because it could easily be a caricature and she doesn't make it that. I think Robert Wright's a really good actress. But I think as I watched that again, I appreciated her performance. So I could have seen either of those people being nominated over, over you know, a few people in this category. I just didn't love this category in general. Uh, I usually don't say an entire category feels off, but this year, yeah, I didn't love these choices. So right. if I had to go with a choice, I'm um, with you. I would go with Susan Sarandon for kind of holding together a borderline cartoon. Yeah, it's interesting. As you were talking about Jamie Lee Curtis, I was thinking that she's kind of a cartoon in a cartoon, whereas Jessica Lang is a cartoon in a non-cartoon, and Susan Sarandon is a non-cartoon in a cartoon. So... Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis kind of balances it out better than either of the others. Um, so maybe she deserves the Oscar. That's uh, that would yeah, have made 2023 a little different. Um, I'm willing to go to bat for it. I just, uh, yeah, found this whole category to be strange. Let, let's both give it to Jamie Lee then. Let's go. Yeah. go Jamie Lee Curtis for, for this year. Jamie I Lee think, gets uh, the Oscar. She's the least cartoonish person in that movie, and yet she can still rise to the level of cartoon when she has to. I think it's a good performance, I think it's underrated. And then let's move on to Best Supporting Actor. Uh, it went to Martin Landau for Ed Wood. Samuel L. Jackson was nominated for Pulp Fiction. Chaz Palminteri for Bullets Over Broadway. Paul Schofield for Quiz Show. And Gary Sinise in Forrest Gump. This category, I think, was probably the hardest. Uh, I agree. Well, I want to say hardest to choose the winner. I think it's the best category overall of the year, if I had to choose. Well, I think this this category is very indicative of this Oscars. I mean, you have Martin Landau of the Old Guard and Samuel L. Jackson in particular from the New Guard. And then uh, I think everybody else is just kind of in the middle of that. So for me, it's really a battle between those two. And I thought Martin Landau was fantastic in Ed Wood. Uh, I rewatched that and I really loved it. Um all, all across the board, but I thought he in particular was was wonderful. Um, so he probably does deserve it. But I think Samuel L. Jackson, this was a role that it just hit you like a ton of bricks. I mean, he commanded the screen when he did this. And and it's it's just so recognizable. It's so quotable. And even today, you know, it, it's still parodied. It's just, it had that much gravity to it. And so I think just because of all of those things, uh, I would give it to him. And also because I think it's just such a symbol of of passing the baton to uh, primarily Quentin Tarantino in this in this case, but just Pulp Fiction in general, I think, symbolized a changing of the guard. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's it's Sam Jackson with with Martin Landau and a very close second because He's he's delightful, <laughs> super funny, uh, and just a delight to watch. So before I get into talking about who I think should have won, I have to say, listen, I think this is a really great category. But Paul Schofield's a bit surprising to me. 
-hmm. because I feel like if you were going to pick an actor in a supporting role to kind of pick out of this, I I think John Totoro probably deserved the nomination. Absolutely. Over anybody else. And I think it's funny because the movie is kind of about how, uh, you know, the kind of waspy person is getting treated better than the, uh, you know, the downtrodden Jewish guy from Queens. And it's like, Mm -hmm. They give the Oscar nomination to to the waspy guy instead of the the guy playing the downtrodden Jew in the, in the movie, which is kind of funny to me because I think even though John Turturro's Italian, not Jewish, but he played a Jewish character, I just think it's a better role. I think he's I don't think anybody appreciates how good John Turturro was in that movie. Uh, maybe he kind of falls into the role so easily that you don't realize what a good job he's doing. I'm not quite sure how it was overlooked. I just think his performance was great, and in watching it again, it just reminded me how good he was in that role. So that was odd. Out of all the people you could pick for Quiz Show, the fact that Toro didn't get the nomination seems surprising to me. Uh, although, I mean, Paul Schofield was fine. And he was good, and I, and I enjoyed him, but I don't think it's his better performance than Toro. So with that being said, the rest of the nominations, Gary Sinise is great, and Forrest Gump, first thing I'd ever seen him in. I mean, he's really good in that movie. Uh, Chaz Palminteri, as I said, I enjoyed Bullets Over Broadway way more than I expected, and I yeah. really loved him in this movie. He's great. He is really great. I, I can't say enough about it. He really helped make the movie for me. Uh, and I think that as you're watching this, you can see how he ends up becoming a voice actor in The Simpsons. I just feel like those things are connected in some way. Like, you know, that I don't I'm pretty sure this predated that, but this feels like you know, this is what made you realize that he could be funny. But yeah, I, in, a, in a different world, I would love to have given the Oscar to Chaz Palminteri, but you're right. It's really just between two people, Sam Jackson and Martin Landau. And I went into this with the feelings that you have right there, where I just felt like there's no way that Sam Jackson can deserve to win. Uh, it's just the role that you recognize. It, it, it's so iconic now at this point that he's been doing it for 30 years since then. But that's, uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's how good it is. But watching the movies again, I have to say, I, I agree that Martin Landau should have won. I just think it's it's a fantastic performance. And it's because he's doing so much. That he's playing a person that we've already seen. So he has to kind of imitate a person. Yeah. He had to basically learn an accent, which is not a common accent. Uh, he has to play a drug addict, which he has to do very convincingly. He's just doing a lot of work. I mean, there's so much to that part. And he really disappears into it. So I can't argue with the fact that Landau deserved to win, even though my gut's telling me I want to see Sam Jackson win because I love the part so much. But at the end of the day, having watched it all over again, I actually agreed that Landau was just the standout performance in a supporting role. Because I don't know who else could have done that part and not have it fall in a caricature. And if it falls in a caricature, the movie falls apart. Because everything else is kind of cartoony in some ways. Uh, it's all a little bizarre. The movie's very quirky. And so, I mean, he's kind of the only part of the movie that doesn't fall into that because he's the tragic center. And, it, and I think it takes a lot to prop that movie up in that way. So I think if someone else does it and does it wrong, I think the movie kind of collapses in on itself. So I just think for that reason as well, I, I just think I would give it to him. Yeah. I, I, well, I think he does have some quirkiness to him in it. I mean, how can you not? But uh, he's he's certainly more uh, even keel than everybody else. And that's saying a lot because he's he's still kind of nuts. And, yeah. Uh, say he's not nuts and say that the... Uh, it's played straight though. It's almost like his quirkiness is is played straight because he's kind of older and falling apart in some ways uh, where everyone else is just kind of weird. So 
but yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. He's not not weird. That's totally true. And that that's his first Oscar win. Um, you know, it could have been one of those instances where he's really getting up there and he's done some amazing work. Let's honor him because he hadn't been honored before. And so I, he did have two previous nominations, uh, actually pretty recent in comparison to this, like 19, 1989 and 1990. But um, yeah, never won. So it could be one of those. But either way, he uh, yeah, he did a great job. He's, he's definitely deserving of it. All right, let's move on to best actor. And and I think this is going to be another one that is an interesting category. Uh, Tom Hanks won for best actor for Forrest Gump. Also nominated Morgan Freeman for The Shawshank Redemption, Nigel Hawthorne for The Madness of King George, Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool, and John Travolta for Pulp Fiction. This is another strong category. You know, Travolta gets nomination because I think people just root for John Travolta and it was his comeback movie. We all know the story of that. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure you know, the nomination is, is warranted. I think he's good. I mean, I really love him in the movie. I just think that yeah, there's just a lot of love for John Travolta. So I feel like that's where the nomination came in. Here's something interesting. Uh, I read this morning that he was offered the role of Forrest Gump and turned it down. No way. It was him, Bill Murray, and Chevy Chase. They all turned it down. Wow. You imagine. How many movies has John Travolta turned down in his career that have ended up being huge parts? I mean, he has a really bad track record of turning down movies. Although, obviously, Pulp Fiction was the right choice. Right. Like, wow. Uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, Nigel Hawthorne was great in The Madness of King George because, I mean, of course, that's the movie. So uh, yeah. that performance has to be great. And he really rises to the occasion of just kind of covering someone losing their mind without even understanding what's happening. It was a really good performance. Uh, I love the movie Nobody's Fool. I didn't mention it before in the list because we were coming to it here, but I've always enjoyed it. I've, I've watched it probably seven, eight times. Uh, it's just a really nice, simple little movie, good performances. And it's just Paul Newman being Paul Newman in a way. I know he's not being Paul Newman, but it it's just, you feel like, you just get to watch Paul Newman do good work as he usually does. And it, it it's just really nice to watch. And, and again, I think that the movie hinges on him playing that part in, in a certain way, because he's not a particularly likable character, but you have to find the kernel of humanity in there to, to like him. And I think he's just really good at that. I, you know, to go off on a tangent, I hadn't seen this before, but I watched it and it started off tough for me, but, um, a few minutes in, it just kind of immediately grabbed me, and I thought it was really sweet. Uh, Bruce Willis was a little over the top, I thought, but an uncredited it, Bruce Willis, which is kind of interesting. Oh really? Yeah, Why he's didn't... not even credited in that movie; he's just in it. So uh, he has a history of doing that. I mean, he has an interesting career where he'll he picks random projects that kind of uh, that I think he just enjoys doing. And this is one that he's in it. But if you check the credits, I mean, he's really not there. That's interesting. It's a yeah, prominent role. Does a favor. Which is why he maybe plays it a little over the top because he's allowed to. I think he's doing someone a favor, so he just kind of uh, rolls with it. And he's supposed to be the the clear bad guy, so uh, <laughs> so that that works. It has Pruitt Taylor Vince in it, and what I kept thinking as I watched it was this would be a great double feature with Beautiful Girls, which comes out two years later, which also has Pruitt Taylor Vince in it, and is also this like snow removal movie. Uh, set in this little town. I, I, I've got to stop you right there because this is kind of crazy. This is why we do this podcast together because 
I was going to make that exact same point. I, I swear to you that I was. And I was going to mention it before when I mentioned the ref, because uh, Ted Demi directed the ref in 94 and Beautiful Girls came out in 95, actually. Right. Uh, so did those back to back. And I was going to mention Peru Taylor Vince and this, and then also Nobody's Fool, making him the MVP of movies that take place in Northeast snowy places. So yeah, I, I really, that's kind of great. I love that, that you brought that up. Well, I know it's not 1994, but when you talk about movie soundtracks, which we might with Pulp Fiction, uh, Beautiful Girls has an incredible soundtrack with the Afghan wigs um, amongst other people. It's 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 really of its time, but also kind of old and and worth listening to. Anyway, right here uh, on CD, I have it. I have it right here. I could I could pull it out and so uh, good. just give a, a shout out my my good friend Lauren. Uh, that's her favorite movie of all time beautiful girls wow uh, and it also kind of takes place during the holidays so mm-hmm. i'll tend to watch it over the holidays and she'll usually contact me every year to ask if i'm watching it and it's just kind of a, a thing where I'll, I'll watch it because she's watching it and, and uh just something that we do so uh a good one yeah okay you mentioned beautiful that, girls super excited about that yeah so yeah nobody's fool is one of those movies that i, that I really enjoy and, and it, it's carried by the lead actor so i i think i'm more than happy to see him at the nomination and I think more people should see that movie. Uh, but again, it kind of comes down to two people, whereas you either give the Oscar to Morgan Freeman or Tom Hanks. And I I will get to it later, but I, I love the Shawshank Redemption. And we'll go down that rabbit hole in, in a little bit. I'm not going to do it right now. But I can easily see Morgan Freeman winning. Uh, it, it wouldn't have surprised me. But again, I don't think there's any other real choice here. Because again, Forrest Gump as a character, I mean, you the three actors you mentioned, they were offered the role. I cannot possibly see any of them in that role. Agreed. And not having the movie be completely different and probably not working as well. Because right. the character itself can't have any cynicism. If it does, it doesn't work. And I know that, that uh, the book is very different and the character is really very different from the character in the movie but in terms of it being a movie i think the character has to be completely pure and i don't think any of those other actors can actually carry that off maybe travolta but i i don't see it i think tom hanks is perfect for the role the burden is on him to, to really play it right to make sure the movie does not suck because he has to carry every scene in the movie and uh in in a, a, a lesser actor's hands i think the movie would fall apart so I think it's a no-brainer. I think Hanks definitely deserves the Oscar. Yeah, I agree. I think it's Hanks and, I mean, it's a love story, basically. And it's so simple with all of this history thrown into it. And and uh, I think <laughs> that's what the Academy loves. And uh, yeah, Tom Hanks and Robert Zemeckis feel like the perfect pair to make something like this. It's it's almost like a, a, a magic elixir that that... They put together and and this came out. Do you find it surprising that uh, Tim Robbins wasn't nominated for the Shawshank Redemption over Morgan Freeman? That's a great point. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting that Freeman ends up getting the nomination. And it's possible that because everyone probably knew <laughs> that Martin Landau was going to win, it's possible that they wanted to put Morgan Freeman in the best actor category, thinking maybe he had a better shot. I have no idea. Uh, you know, most of this stuff is political, uh, so it's possible they went that route. Where I always felt like Morgan Freeman's role was probably more of a supporting role. 
Yeah. Tim Robbins was, was, was the, the lead actor, but it could go either way. I wouldn't have been surprised to see Tim Robbins as get a best supporting actor not, but but I am surprised. And he did two excellent movies in 94. He mm -hmm. also did the Hutsucker Proxy, which right. Paul Newman was also in as well. Just again, just a ton of instances where actors are doing double duty in high quality movies, but just yeah. a, a lot a lot more actors being in multiple, multiple movies. But but anyway, yeah, I, I am I am surprised. I mean, now that you bring it up, it's 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 uh interesting. Yeah, I think I would knock Paul Schofield out of Best Supporting Actor and move Morgan Freeman down there and, and put Tim Robbins up there for Best Actor. But yeah, I think that in, I think that in some instances, maybe because uh, Freeman's the narrator of the movie. Right. That's kind of what makes him lead actor because, you know, it is his story as he's telling it. So I think that is what creates, I think that's probably how that that falls in. If I had yeah. Guess. I still think Tim Robbins would be the better pick. Um, but even if you were there, he, he would lose to Tom Hanks for sure, uh, because that's just a perfect role for him and in perfect material for him. So you can't really question it. Yeah, I can't believe that. I can't imagine Bill Murray playing far as crazy movie that would have been. Yeah, any of those people. I mean, Chevy Chase. Chase, Jesus. Yeah. You would have hated far as all right, let's move on to Best Director. Robert Zemeckis won for Forrest Gump. Um, also nominated were Woody Allen for Bullets Over Broadway, Quentin Tarantino for Pulp Fiction, Robert Redford for Quiz Show, and Christoph Kieslowski for Red. This was a tough one for me. I, I think that there are a lot of strong options here. And I think Zemeckis kind of has a just a perfect thing with Tom Hanks and, and Forrest Gump. I don't know that Woody Allen deserved it for Bullets Over Broadway. That was a fine film, but I don't I don't think it was Oscar worthy. But I, I do think Quentin and Pulp Fiction probably would be my my uh pick on this because it's just so alive, this this film. And I, I think there were a lot of moving parts, and I just think there's so much to it that required great direction. And he it's really his calling card. I know Reservoir Dogs came out, but but I think what he did in Pulp Fiction is going to set the tone for everything that comes after it. And and for that, I, I give him the award over Zemeckis, which was also fine. But to me, I, I don't see any any way to argue against Quentin. I guess that means it falls on me to, to make the argument. Uh, make the argument, yeah. All right. I'm going to see what, see what I can do. Because this is interesting. I said I went into this one with... Uh, some preconceived ideas, as I've always said, uh, when we talked about the Goodfellas, I always felt really strongly about that. And this is the other year that I feel really strongly about in terms of how, how the awards broke down. And I very much expected to say that Tarantino absolutely should have won. Uh, but before we get there, I agree with you in terms of direction for Bolts Over Broadway, uh, which as I said, I enjoyed way more than I expected. But I think it's interesting that Frank Darabont doesn't get a nomination for Shawshank. Yeah. I mean, that seems crazy to me. I just think the Shawshank Redemption was criminally overlooked here. Um, and, and I think that he definitely deserved a nomination. Whether or, not he deserved, whether or not he deserved a win is, you know, anybody's argument. But I think he definitely deserved the nomination. Quiz Show, I mean, this is the only place to really talk about Quiz Show. So I'll, I'll do it here. Um, that's another movie that I think has kind of, kind of floated away in terms of, uh, you know, people discussing movies from 94 and, and, Good movies in general I just, I just think it's it's kind of hasn't had this sticking power but having watched it again it's a really really wonderful movie it is and, uh, 
it really works. There's so many things in it that are great. Uh, I laughed though, or realized it uh, after we talked about all the president's men. I guess Rob Bradford just likes watching mo- making movies where people knock on people's doors and then have the door slam on their face. <laughs> this, 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 I guess it's something he really likes. But um, it, it, yeah, it's an excellent movie, and and it's uh, maybe his best directing uh, that that he's done in his career. Uh, and there's a couple of things I have to say. Uh, I saw Scorsese. Martin Scorsese actually has a part in the movie. So it's a decent sized part. He, he yeah. plays a pharmaceutical executive. And I don't believe he's ever acted in a movie that wasn't his own. Yeah, I think Robert Redford must have called him to apologize for uh, beating him in the Oscar race of 81 when Redford won for Ordinary People, which he did not deserve. He So Wait. in ni- in 1992, here's 92, Scorsese plays Vincent Van Gogh in Akira Kurosawa's movie Dreams which is an amazing scene to see. He has the bandaged head, the big hat. Um, but outside of that bit part, I don't know that he has ever done anything in another another film. Uh, certainly nothing with the, you know, the screen time that Quiz Show has, but yeah. it does have that little tidbit. So I think he must have given him the role as an apology for undeservedly beating him in the Oscar race back back 81. Uh, that's, that's the <laughs> only thing I can think of. But Scorsese was surprisingly good in the role too. And he has my favorite line in the movie where he talks about how, um, you know, it doesn't really matter who wins. He said what they discovered is that people just follow the money. And I immediately thought, like, how prescient that is, because down the road, you know, we end up getting like deal or no deal or just people picking suitcases for cash. And you're like, right. Holy crap, Like that's a totally prescient line. Uh, whether or not it was said in the 50s, it's in the script, though, in 94. I'm like, wow, they really nailed that one. That, that was uh, just something that stood out to me. So my favorite line in the movie is actually given a Scorsese. But besides that, I just think it's a really enjoyable movie. It is. I, you know, when I when I watched it again, I because we had just done this recently, I kept thinking about Good Night and Good Luck and how they they play so well together. And and I felt like I was watching almost another version of that. And I love both of them. So I, I was really happy to watch this again. And I'm glad to see it getting uh getting some Oscar attention. I agree. So that's so I felt like I, I had to mention that. But at the end of the day, again, you know, a two-person race between Tarantino and Zemeckis. And I fully expect to say that I think Tarantino should absolutely win because Pulp Fiction is uh, a singular achievement at the time. But I actually came around to being persuaded to be fine with Zemeckis winning for Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. And this is my argument. And so when I'm watching Forrest Gump, it's hard to not think about all the ways that Forrest Gump could suck. And in some ways, many would, some people would say it does either way. There are people that don't love Forrest Gump. <laughs> I don't love it. Right. I don't necessarily love it either, uh, to, to be honest. Uh, and I think it has diminishing returns the more that you watch it. But there are just so many ways that Forrest Gump could suck. Even the source material wasn't very popular. Um, and if they made it as it was written in the book, I don't think it's a movie anybody would watch. So I give credit to the screenwriter and I give credit to Zemeckis for not only making a movie that hits all the facets of emotion, you know, it, it's, and it's a lot of different movies rolled up into one movie. I mean, so Zemeckis is basically filming a war movie. He's filming a historical movie, mm-hmm. films a uh, love story. Uh, in a way, he's filming an action movie when they're on the shrimp boat. It's a lot of different movies rolled into one movie. And as I watched it, that's what I was struck by. And to realize he was able to basically make a bunch of different small movies and jam them into one big movie. And the way I feel like 
Tom Hanks is probably the only person that could have directed, I mean, I'm sorry, acted in Forrest Gump. I think Zemeckis might have been the only person to be able to direct Forrest Gump hmm. and pull it off in the way that he did. Because he's always been kind of technically good as a director, but also slightly hokey, even going back to Back to the Future, which is my favorite Zemeckis movie. But you know, everything he's done is, is kind of like technical wizardry and a slight hokiness until he makes uh, What Lies Beneath, which is one of my favorite thriller movies, just a, a, a real departure for him, which, which I loved. But I feel like that uh, defines Spielberg as well. So maybe could he have directed it? Wow, you're hitting me with my my own loveless Spielberg back in my face. <laughs> Damn it, you're right. He could have directed this. Also hokey and technical. Yeah, but hokey in a different way. Where Zemeckis, I think because it's got some, uh, you know, it's got the green screen stuff where it's meeting the presidents and all that kind of stuff. Spielberg doesn't get down for that. Like, I, don't, I think that's a certain kind of technical stuff that Spielberg doesn't play into where that's right in Zemeckis' wheelhouse. Um, of course, the dubbing looks terrible in, in retrospect when you, when you rewatch it, but just the whole thing, all of that stuff is, I feel, is very Zemeckis. It's not, it's not the way that Spielberg is hokey. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. But Zemeckis definitely has gone to the Spielberg school of emotion. I, I, sure. I give, but yeah, it was a lot of ways where I was watching and thinking of all the ways that Forrest Gump could be totally unwatchable. And I think that Zemeckis deserves a lot of credit for making it not that. And as I said, also just directing a bunch of different genres within one movie and, and pulling it all up because the war scenes are actually really well done, realistic in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was interesting. In some ways, it's kind of like a sports movie, playing ping pong and all this other stuff. I just found myself being taken by all that. So that is my argument as to why Zemeckis could win. But as I'm saying all of this, my, my gut saying Tarantino probably. <laughs> well, I think this, everything you just described it kind of feels like big Hollywood, like the Academy loves. And Tarantino is doing such a masterful job in a small film. And I think that's, it's just, you know, it, it defines the year really. It's, it's this big Hollywood thing versus this well-made tight independent film. And, uh, that's the argument. I mean, that's that's the argument that the, the Academy had to make and the Academy is always going to go big Hollywood. So right. this is always an interesting argument because, I mean, Tarantino obviously did less, more with less yeah, because it's an independent film and Zemeckis did more with more. And the argument, I call this the Michael Bay argument. So the question is, does a director deserve credit for making a giant, ridiculous, big budget crazy movie as Michael Bay specializes in. Because is it harder to corral all of these action elements and all of this craziness? Is, is that a skill that deserves to be commended? Or is it people that do more with less? So I firmly believe that there are a lot of people that could not make Michael Bay movies. They, they right. do not have the capacity to pull off blowing up an entire shanty town as he's done multiple times to make these movies that he makes, right? There's a certain skill to that. Yeah. Is it a directing skill? I have no idea, but it is a skill and certain directors have it and others don't. So is it harder to pull that off or is it harder to take a movie with no budget and make it look like a big movie? And I think that's the eternal argument. Well, I think it depends on the director. I mean, and their skill set. You know, I, I, I think having the vision to do something that Michael Bay does and then enacting it, that's absolutely directing. And I think to have the 
the ability to go quiet and make something super small like Tarantino did. Uh, you know, they're both directors and they they each have their own kind of forte and and yeah, I mean not everybody can do it like you say, but I mean respect to both of them and and everybody in in both categories because to direct a movie I would imagine is super duper hard. So yeah, well, it's like I, I, Michael Bay is the first thing that comes to my mind because I said I kind of have thought about this in the past and I always think of Michael Bay when I'm thinking about it. But interestingly enough, 94, I mean, Cameron would certainly fall into that category where it's like Cameron's almost become as he's, as the years have gone, become more of a, a craftsman than, than a director in some ways. He just specializes in making these, creating these giant worlds and, and all right. this. And in some ways, True Lies is almost the beginning of that ego-driven kind of bombast because... True Lies is a pretty nutty movie. Yeah, uh, I, I'm rewatching it. I hadn't watched it in like 20 years, and, and rewatching it, I'm like, wow, this is uh, this is a lot. <laughs> I'll have to take a look at it and see. I, I wish I had rewatched it for this. Um, we had a lot of other movies to watch, but I just was up late one night and decided, ah, eh, it falls in '94. I'm gonna throw it on. So, so I, I decided <laughs> to sit through it. Uh, but to getting back to the point, even my whole argument for Zemeckis, I'm not annoyed that he won, and I'm glad he was recognized for for something. <laughs> Um, which is a terrible way to vote. That's how maybe how Martin Landau wins, but I don't have an issue with him being recognized. But yeah, at the end of the day, Tarantino probably should have won. I agree. And we can talk more about it in Best Picture uh, because I think at least I will have some similar ideas. So let's move on to that. Forrest Gump won Best Picture. Uh, Pulp Fiction was nominated, also nominated Four Weddings and a Funeral, Quiz Show, and The Shawshank Redemption. Do you, do you think Forrest Gump or Pulp Fiction here? <laughs> well, I like to I like to ease into these things. <laughs> with, with first to say, I was a big fan of Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, and I rewatched it and liked it less. So I feel like that also is a movie that's kind of had some diminishing returns. So I don't necessarily think that Four Weddings and a Funeral deserved the nomination. I'm not even really sure why it's there. So that's my my first argument. And I would say you take Four Weddings and a Funeral out. So this is where I get into my big picture argument. Mm-hmm. The movie that I believe should have been nominated for Best Picture, along with these other ones, is The Lion King. Mm. And I said this to many people, not all of them agree with me, but I go to the mat for it. I genuinely believe that The Lion King is the pinnacle of the second wave of Disney movies. You know, it started with Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Ghost of the Lion King. And they nominated Beauty and the Beast for Best Picture. And I have no argument with that either. But I think probably because they had nominated Beauty and the Beast maybe five years before that, I think they felt weird nominating another animated movie for Best Picture. But I think The Lion King is definitely one of the best pictures of the year. As a matter of fact, it's my top three movies. It's in my top three movies of 94. I think it's almost perfect in every way. It's got one of the greatest opening sequences in, in all of movies as far as I'm concerned. I think that opening sequence is phenomenal. Uh, and I think that every subsequent version of The Lion King proves to you how great the original animated version is. Because all these other ones are more bloated. I mean, they did that remake that they call live action. That's obviously not live action. It's just different animation. <laughs> it's like an hour longer. And just it's it's the perfect example of uh, less with less with more, where it's more movie, but it's just less. It just drags on and it's unnecessary to be that long. So it's a tight 90 minutes. They tell you everything you need to know in a 90-minute movie. The animation is top-notch. I mean, the, the, the voice acting is great. Uh, 
I'm a huge fan of the music's wonderful. I, I'm a big Lion King promoter. I think it deserves to be in the best picture category. Um, and, you know, if anybody wants to come and argue with me about it, I'm fine with that. But, but I, uh, I say it, I stand by that. I, I believe that to be true. So having said that, for weddings and funeral out of there, Lion King. To me, this is actually a three picture race, which is what makes it a, a good year. Because I think the Shawshank Redemption is just one of the best movies of the 90s, much less 94. I remember at the time in 95, I was working on a, on a blockbuster video, <laughs> big surprise. And I remember really vividly that Shawshank Redemption and Color of Night, which is a movie that also came out in <laughs> 94, stars Bruce Willis. It's this really terrible, I don't know what you'd call it, sexual thriller. It, like it wants to be a Brian De Palma movie, like Dress the Kill or something like that. Jane, Mar Jane Marsh, I believe, is, is the actress. That's Jane March. Jane March, yeah. And this movie's straight up trash. Like, it's, it's, it's a trash movie. But people at Blockbuster could not get enough of it. Like, everybody was running Color of Night. So eventually, I just kind of had enough. And I started telling people to stop running Color of Night and start watching the Shawshank Redemption. Like, I just kept giving people the Shawshank <laughs> Redemption. Please, like, you should rent this movie. I'm like, this is a really good movie. You have to see it. So I'd like to think that I played a small part in, in exposing the Shawshank Redemption to a few people who would not have watched it. And they ended up thanking me for it because anyone that sees the Shawshank Redemption appreciates what a good movie it really is. And you might be the reason that it's on cable like 15 times per weekend. I would like to hope that I am because <laughs> uh, I, I'm a big proponent of that. I just think that it was really overlooked when it came out, uh, maybe because it was a movie about prison. I, I don't know why. People just did not go see it. But I think that was a huge mistake. I just think it is definitely in the top three movies. Uh, if you want my, well, my list, which I'll tell you after I say that Pulp Fiction should obviously have one best picture. And so, as I said, like what I'm watching in 95 when I see this, it's just no reason in any way that Forrest Gump wins best picture over Pulp Fiction, except the fact that Forrest Gump gives the Academy voters what they want which is all the same stuff that they get in all the other Academy movies. Oh, Pulp Fiction yeah. is a complete sea change in movies. And again, like I said with Goodfellas, you see it when you see it. You recognize it immediately, that you're watching something that's going to change everything. And it not only changes everything, but it is just an entertaining movie. Uh, I know some people don't love Tarantino, whatever the reasons are, but you cannot watch this and not say that you're watching a, a singular filmmaker kind of change the genre as, as it's happening. So yeah, it, it wins, hands down. It's just, it's just the best picture of the year. So my top three movies of 94, in case you were asking, which I guess you didn't, but I'll tell you anyway. Tell me. Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, and The Lion King is third. Okay. Forrest Gump is probably sixth or seventh, because I think Quiz Show is a better movie. But Pulp Fiction, hands down, best picture. I don't think it's any surprise that I'm going to pick Pulp Fiction for this for all the same reasons that you said. I, I think it it's a moment in time and it's it's something new and unique and uh, actually kind of built on old things that have already been done, which is Quentin's sort of standard. But um, it's I think it's just an important film. And I think you could see that in the year. I remember not really knowing anything about it and just seeing it at a local movie theater on the marquee and wondering what it was and walking in and then walking out and just thinking, holy shit, 
that was something that I'd never seen before. And it was obvious in the moment. And I think to an extent, maybe everything everywhere all at once this year was similar to that. It's something so different that- Right, I like the fact that you mentioned that it's taking stuff that's existed before, but putting it through a completely different lens. Because you're right, we all know Tarantino, who he's stolen from and everything, and he admits all that. But it's through a completely unique lens. Everything everywhere all at once is similar, where it's, it's a bunch of things, genres, topics, and stuff that we've seen before, but never in the way that it's presented, in the way that you're seeing it. And you feel like you're seeing something completely different for that reason. Where Forrest Gump is kind of taking stuff that's existed and just giving you kind of the same thing, but with a different character in the center of it. Well, I think that there are just, if you look at the elements of this, I mean, Pulp Fiction won the Palm d'Or at Cannes, but the nominations it gets, so it, it won for best screenplay from Quentin and Roger Avery, of course. Um, Sally Menke was edit, was uh, nominated for editing. And I think that is a critical role, not only in this film, but all of Quentin's films. He used her, I believe, on everything he's done uh, until she passed. But uh, just the balls of this film, I think, to to bring John Travolta in, to, to tear up the timeline, to reference all of this stuff from pop culture from, you know, 30 years prior to present day. It's just, it's a movie maybe not by a Gen Xer. I don't know how old Tarantino is, but specifically for Gen Xers, I think. It was just so of the time and perfect in that moment. And it took all of these things that weren't really being done by filmmakers, Um kind of like the things that happened in the late sixties and early seventies. I think it was reaching a new audience and it was, it was giving them something that they wanted versus the things that were being presented prior to that. And for all of those reasons, I think it, it hands down wins best picture. No doubt in my mind. I agree. Uh, Going back to nominations, which I, which I forgot to mention, I would, I would nominate speed. What would yeah. be more important than Speed in 1994? I mean, well, Pulp Fiction <laughs> being first, but I mean, Speed ends up becoming the template for almost every action movie that takes place after it. So, I mean... Uh, it, it also redefined Keanu's career, I think. I mean, it took do. him from... I mean, okay, there's Point Break, but this made him an action star. I mean, I Point Break has an element of that, I guess, but for him to carry an action film and look at what he's gone on to do, The Matrix, John Wick, uh, it... It changed his career, and thank goodness. And it launched Sandra Bullock, really, if, yeah. if you hadn't seen Love Potion Number 9. Yeah, and as I was going to say before, I'd be perfectly happy with Sandra Bullock getting a nomination over, uh, you know, throw that in the Best Actress category, which I think was a messy category. I'd say Sandra Bullock over Winona Ryder. I would be fine with that. Over uh, anybody, really. Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, she she's cartoonish in that, but it's a cartoonish situation. It's a crazy situation. She's over the top. But it fits it fits the film, whereas nobody else really did that. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think that's a that's a good re re Oscar there. Um, yeah, I'm trying to re Oscar it up as much as possible here. Yeah, this is a, I mean this is an interesting year for that because I mean the winners are kind of rock solid. In some ways, it's really just a two or three movie race. But all the other stuff, uh, I think there's a lot of a few overlooked things. A lot of interesting movies that came out that year got lost in the conversation. Interestingly enough, just to real quick throw out a couple of categories we're not really talking about in depth, but I also expected the uh, adapted screenplay Oscar. I had always thought the Shawshank Redemption should have won 
just because I think it's it's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. But again, as as I learn more about Forrest Gump and how it was written, um, I can't really argue with that winning best adapted screenplay because if you actually read the book of Forrest Gump, it could not be more different. And Forrest is pretty unlikable, and the whole movie, the whole book is pretty dark and and not very enjoyable. So I think Eric Roth actually probably does deserve the Oscar for turning that into, I mean, of course, a very Hollywood movie, but turning it into something that people actually enjoy and want to watch. Yeah. Um, so I kind of came around to that as well, interestingly enough, even though I think The Shawshank Redemption is a better movie, and I think it deserves to be recognized in some way, but I can't really argue with that. That's true. And you wanted to say something about score, I think, didn't you? I didn't want to say something about score. Um what I find amazing, and then I just went on the wall for uh, the Lion King here, but um, you know, giving that best score, uh, I don't really agree with. I mean, the songs were really good. What I found shocking was that the score for Legends of the Fall wasn't even nominated, which I think is pretty shocking because not only is Legends of the Fall the only score I have ever purchased on CD. That's how much I like the score of that movie. I never <laughs> bought, I think I only bought one other since then, but I actually own Legends of the Fall because I just thought the score was so great. But in years after that, it was used in so many trailers for other movies. They used that music. Oh. You hear it in trailers when you see other movies. It, it ends up becoming a very recognizable score. And I was just shocked to see that it, it wasn't even nominated, much less win. So... Uh, that was just something that, that was really surprising to me. Well, you needed three slots for the Lion King, right? Didn't they? Yeah. Have, <laughs> like a million. Oh, that was the original song. Yeah, that was the original song. But, but yeah. so, yeah, I just felt like they got lazy and gave it to the Lion King. But I just think, <laughs> yeah, in retrospect, Legends of the Fall, I mean, not even getting a nomination is, is shocking. Uh, the only awesome. other thing that I will say is, uh, you know, best visual effects, you know, regardless mm-hmm. of, of who won. I mean, for me personally, I think the best visual effect was Brad Pitt's hair in Legends of the Fall. <laughs> one of my favorite things. I've only been jealous of two heads of hair in my whole life. The first is John Bon Jovi in 1989, uh, particularly the Born to Be My Baby video. Uh, <laughs> I just really wanted that hair when I was a kid. And the second is Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall. Just a wonderful head of hair. It's mesmerizing. Best thing in the movie by far. Uh, <laughs> Brad Pitt's hair then the score and then everything else. I need to revisit that just for the hair. Just for the hair. I mean, it's worth it. In a long time. Um, something that was interesting to me is that Hoop Dreams didn't get a nomination for Best Documentary. I actually did not realize that. That is shocking. I mean, to me, that's like the Pulp Fiction of documentaries. It's like this independent sports documentary that really sets a template for everything that comes after it. And uh, for it to not be nominated is really surprising it yeah you're absolutely right uh interesting you say that because i was listening to something about a different sports documentary um a couple weeks ago and they mentioned how hoop dreams kind of did set that idea of just kind of following a couple of people like just finding a subject and following that subject for years because inevitably it will yield fruit just because you've been with these people for so long and hoop dreams was kind of the beginning of that in some ways i mean not obviously it's existed before but Who Dreams really followed these two kids for a very extended period of time. And after that, you know, that became a, a template that was used a lot more after that. So you're definitely right. 
Yeah, I think that ESPN's kind of bread and butter of 30 for 30 wouldn't exist without it. It's it's a really important doc. I mean, it did get an editing nomination, but why it's not a documentary nomination is is really surprising. Um, I think unless you have anything else, that kind of does it for the nominations and the Oscar categories. But, uh, well, we want to have our own and get into the Hell of a Year Award. Well, before we get into the Hell of a Year Award, uh, we do always like to talk about people that were working hard. And I, I didn't realize at first that uh, we should call it the Samuel L. Jackson Award for uh, being in the most movies of the year. <laughs> but Sam Jackson doesn't win this year. He's only in two. But Tommy Lee Jones was in four movies that came out in 1994. <laughs> so he was in The Client. He was in Cobb. He was in Blue Sky. And he was in Blown Away, which I think Blown Away is an underrated movie. By the way, he's got some good speed vibes, and he plays the villain in that. He's really good. Yeah. Uh, so he's in four movies, and Susan Sarandon was in three movies. She was also in a movie called uh, Safe Passage, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was in three. So they were working incredibly hard in 1994. Yeah, and then you have Pruitt, Taylor, Vince, and Paul Newman both in two movies. Yeah, there are a lot of them. I mean, it's it's still the era where people are in multiple films per year, but. I think even even though they were in a lot of films, the hell of a year award can go not necessarily to somebody who was just in a ton of movies, but somebody who had a good year. So who's your pick for this? So the hell of a year award, because Pulp Fiction was overlooked at the Oscars, I feel like I have to give Tarantino the hell of a year award. And you know, it's obvious, but sometimes the obvious things are correct. Where I know Reservoir Dogs was popular and he had gotten buzz from that but Pulp Fiction completely changed uh, not only the trajectory of Tarantino's career but in some ways the trajectory of movies of, of the 90s uh, as we know as people who sat through so many bad Pulp Fiction ripoffs throughout the 90s from that point on um, so I mean it's just kind of one person just shifting everything in a different way and making Tarantino almost immediately one of those writer directors that you just know by name who becomes a character in and of himself so, I mean, it completely changed his life and it completely changed movies going forward for the 90s. So uh, I think it's a no-brainer uh, it, to say that Tarantino had a hell of a year. Yeah, I, I think we're unanimous on that. Um, and it's not just... So Pulp Fiction does this amazing thing. You know, it, it kind of sets the indie world on fire. But he also, uh, he won an Oscar for that. It won the Palme d'Or. He also co-wrote Natural Born Killers this year. Um, and he co-wrote True Romance the year before. But he was he was also punching up scripts in 1994. So he worked on Crimson Tide and The Rock. So those came out in subsequent years, but you have to think he was working on them in that year. And just a busy year for the guy and, and sort of like a... Uh, I don't know, just a, a monumental year in film history. And he's at the center of it, I think. And even to this day, you know, what he did in 1994 resonates and it, it's inspired so much of what we have now. And and yeah, I, I thought about John Travolta for this just because he comes back from the Look Who's Talking franchise and gets nominated for an Oscar. But that's also thanks to Quentin. So you really can't say anything other than Quentin Tarantino for this. 
I didn't even think about it till just this moment that Pulp Fiction was a Look Who's Talking reunion of Bruce Willis and John Travolta. That's Bruce right. Was the voice of the baby. I, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that, that's something I don't know if I want to think about or not. All right, well, let's move on to guilty pleasures and snubs because I'm dying to hear what your guilty pleasure is for this year. Okay, so I actually have two guilty pleasure movies. Okay. Uh, so the first one is a movie called Surviving the Game. Okay. Okay. So Surviving the Game is basically another version of the most dangerous game, one of the most told tales. Just this idea of rich people hunting poor people for sport, mm-hmm. uh, which they've made a bunch of times. But this one I love because it stars Ice T as a bum who gets kidnapped and dropped <laughs> in an island. And and the cast of this movie is crazy. Like it's got Gary Busey in it, Rutger Hauer stars the movie, Charles Dutton. F. Murray Abraham is in it. It's just a, a really good cast for a truly stupid movie. Uh, and I love every minute of it. I, I just really like it. I like, I just like Ice-T. Uh, I like his performance. It's just the right amount of Ice-T that you need in this kind of movie. But it's directed by Ernest Dickerson, who two years before this had directed Juice, which is just one of my favorite movies of the 90s. Uh, Omar Epps, Tupac, mm-hmm. Shakur is in it. Yeah. Great movie. And then he followed up with this. And so um, not as good, but I, I I like every minute of it. I just like watching it. And and uh, I always appreciate a good Charles S. Dutton performance. So, but <laughs> my truly guilty pleasure movie. I think we're going to overlap on this. Yeah, let, then I'm going to give, I'm going to give it to you. You pick yours. Uh, okay. I don't want to step on it. So you, you tell me if it's right or not. Okay. Blue chips. No. Oh, not my pick. Okay, oh, good. I love blue chips. Good. So, blue chips is oh my god! This film we have Shaquille O'Neal in his first role, I believe. Yeah, it was such a big deal that he came out. You have Nick Nolte, Peak Nolte, uh, kind of playing a more subdued Bobby Knight, who is sort of pressured into nefarious means for building this basketball team. But what's amazing about this, it's written by Ron Shelton, who, of course, wrote all the wonderful sports movies over the last 30 years um, and directed by William Friedkin. So this film has such a pedigree to it, and it's absolutely crazy. It's so much fun to watch. And if you haven't seen it, please go watch it right now because it is you you love it. You just love it. Um, Wow. What a crazy film with crazy filmmakers that doesn't really get him a lot of love anymore, even though it should. I I, I love it. I, I actually really like that movie. I wasn't sure it was a guilty pleasure though, but I I, I think I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. Uh, yeah. So I almost went with um, Interview with the Vampire, hmm. which I still like, but I don't think it's a guilty pleasure again because it was pretty popular when it came out. But my Truly guilty pleasure of 1994 is Milk Money. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to let you guys in here. Uh, I normally would not admit to liking Milk Money. (laughs) But we're talking about guilty pleasure, so I'll go with it. It is a movie that should absolutely be the worst movie you've ever seen in your life. And to many people, it is. But Melanie Griffith is just really enjoyable in this movie. Okay. I'll give you the quick synopsis of the movie. Movies about these three little kids who decide that they want to see a naked lady. So they pull their money together and they hire a prostitute. 
played by Melanie Griffith. And uh, as she's driving them home, her car breaks down and she ends up staying with one of the kids and his his, uh, his father, who's a widower, played by Ed Harris. And um, this turns into a romantic comedy. I don't know how, but it does. So you just got Ed Harris who's just giving off, I'm not sure what I'm doing here energy, which is really fun. <laughs> But Melanie Griffith, I mean, she just commits. And the truth is, she's just really, really likable in this movie. Uh, it should be truly awful. But I just liked it when I saw it. And I saw it again. And I still didn't hate it. So I I, uh, I just kind of enjoyed it. I enjoy how terrible it is. Uh, and I enjoy watching Ed Harris visibly be uncomfortable in the movie. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and it's directed by Richard Benjamin. Yeah. Also directed The Money Pit and was just in a ton of late 70s, early 80s movies. So he ended up becoming a director and, and uh, did this one. So it's got that thing. Richard Benjamin's in a lot of movies like this where the tone seems wrong and it's kind of hanging on by a thread. But he's always been likable in movies. And that's what I feel about this. Like it's got that Richard Benjamin thing where it just comes off as likable, even though you're not even sure it's any good. So... That is my, that's my pick and, I, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, I'm going with Milk Money. Would I recommend people see it? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I can wholeheartedly recommend it, but I like it. So there you go. That's a good one. That uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I know it's, I remember really enjoying it when I did. Um, and that, that reminds me that it's another uh, two performance year for Melanie Griffiths and she's in Nobody's Fool as well. That's correct. I have to say, just speaking to Richard Benjamin, the, the first time I saw him was in Saturday the 14th in 1981, which was just such a wonderful film. I really loved it as, what was I, like seven years old then? That was one of those HBO staples that I think was on all the time, or it was on something, and and uh, that really introduced me to him, and I, and I loved it, and and uh, yeah, that's that's all I had to say about Richard Benjamin. <laughs> There's so much more to say about Richard Benjamin, but, but, yeah. we're gonna leave, but we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there because I think we we hear the music and we're getting played off. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, hope you enjoyed re and we will see you next time.